Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. to another episode of Blockhead, quick on the heels of our, our magnum opus, our big two-part episode with Ryan Flanders, the former design director of Mad Magazine, talking about the future and past of Mad Magazine, the pros and cons of losing it as a uh, print publication, the most mostly cons, I guess. A little update, a little news uh, from Ryan. I heard that there may be some other possibilities regarding Mad in the near future. Uh, This new issue that's going to be coming out in comic book stores is going to be uh, a bellwether one way or another. And uh, I don't know, it may may have an impact on where Mad goes in the future. So uh, we shall see. I wish all of those guys at Mad Magazine the best, and uh, and I hope this is a big success, and I uh, hope it's a big success for Ryan, too. Whatever he hopes for pans out one way or the other. We will keep our fingers crossed, because uh, Mad Magazine, well, world without Mad in these this day and age seems uh, unthinkable, really. We must have parody and satire. We must pop the balloon of the big buffoon. Uh, (laughs) That's terrible. Anyway. Uh, Okay. So chances are, unless you subscribe to a small town weekly newspaper, you've never encountered the comic strip Zed about a piece of dryer lint. Uh, Dryer lint from the dryer. What is it with with laundromats and... and, uh, and washers and dryers. In my comic strip, there's a laundromat that plays a big part of it. You know, within it, too, you think there's a, some kind of underlying theme to the <laughs> to the show, or uh, or there's an obsession running through our head or something. I don't know what it is, but may, maybe it's a zeitgeist. You know, I, I think I read somewhere that laundromats are are chic now. Uh, there was a, there are a lot of photo shoots happening in laundromats. <laughs> Anyway, I was obsessed with laundromats long before those fashionistas, let me tell you. So, anyway, Dwayne Abel's comic strip, Zed, is published in small-town weekly newspapers. It's been going for like 25 years, and it's in about 30 newspapers across the United States. Unless you get one of those newspapers, you're unlikely to have encountered it. Again, it's about a a living piece of dryer lint. How you make a comic strip out of that, I don't know, but Dwayne's done it for 25 years. And Dwayne Abel doesn't follow the usual path for cartoonists, the path that has been set out as the uh, model and template for most of us who are struggling to, to... be seen and be heard today and in today's comic strip and comic environment. It is a comic environment, but that's another story. And 
he's followed a path that's uniquely his own. He goes to the, the, the beat of his own drum, if you will, and uh, a different drummer indeed. And he's combined his unique talents from a disparate array of media uh, to come up with a path that is unlike any other, and he's become quite successful at it. He's, he's succeeded in uh, buying his own home and, and establishing himself uh, as a self-employed business person. Uh, he has, he travels the country on a regular basis. He publishes on a regular basis, and uh, and he's got a following. And all of it done uh, by avoiding the usual methods and methodologies that we're all so familiar with by this time. He's had his share of trouble and difficulty. He's never given up. Uh, he's he's struggled on uh, in the face of great adversity. I would have to say, over the course of many years. And uh, to find, as I said, uh, a, a place in this world that is uniquely his own, a place in the world of cartooning that is uniquely his own. And uh, that is really fascinating and, and something that I can learn from and we can all learn from. And it's kind of a sign of hope, really, that you can go, you can develop your own path and succeed uh, outside the, the regular channels, if you will. Dwayne's Comic Strip Z is not online except for on his own website where you can see little snippets of it. Uh, every now and again, he puts up something on Instagram, but for the most part, he avoids social media and the usual pathways to visibility. He holds on to and subscribes to uh, print as, as his medium of choice. Uh, even in these days, um, wherein uh, syndication and the newspaper market is shrinking, he still finds a way, and he self-syndicates, and has again established himself, you know, to be very viable in that way. Uh, but that's not all, and that's that's not even the most interesting part. The most interesting part is that Dwayne uh, brings together a unique set of skills that are based in uh, an education in the theater and an interest in the theater, and he's become a very successful motivational speaker, uh, traveling from one school to another across the United States, giving demonstrations and presentations as well as talking to uh, corporate environments. Uh, he's done TED Talks. Uh, he's talked at the Schultz Museum out in California. He has also spoken in uh, assisted living facilities and wherever, and at, at um, state fairs, uh, believe it or not. He's been in a wide variety of environments and talked to people and spread the gospel, if you will, of comics and cartooning and what it means and what it takes to be a successful cartoonist and how individuals can take those skills and apply them to their own situation in their own life. So he's become a kind of self-help guru, if you will, through comics. And uh, he's created something he calls Toonspiration for these talks. And, and it works. And uh, people are responding. So that is fascinating. That's really unique. And it's very hopeful, a very hopeful sign. It's important to hear that people are taking different routes. Yeah, we all kind of get into this mindset where we think, well, the only legitimate viable path is this way. And so for one set of, you know, uh, one period in our history, syndication is the only route. Or the, uh, another time working for DC or Marvel is the only route uh, to go by. Um, in some ways, it's almost like hypnosis, you know, we, we fall into this trap. But the reality of it is, is that 
We each have unique skills, and Dwayne is really a great example of this. We each come to the game with a unique set of abilities, and the task is really to find out what our best abilities are and how to put them in the service of both what we want to do and what the public wants from us. And uh, uh, Dwayne has done that by bringing together his experience and love of theater with a love of cartooning. And he's, he's created this unique identity for himself. There are many different ways to go. It's just a matter of sort of stepping outside and realizing that each of them is viable as a path in its own right, as long as it's something that, is, that has integrity and that is reflective of the self. And whomever you know, you or I may be, there is nobody else like you. There is nobody else like me. We each have our own talents. They are not necessarily the same talents that Mort Walker had or Charles Schultz had, but they are unique to ourselves. And, and the task at hand is to find out what those are, to enable them to flourish to their best possible ability, and to, f to utilize them as a key to, to taking us interesting places and places we may never have dreamed of and places we want to go. And uh, and certainly we can look at, at Charles Schultz as an example, you know, in his own right of doing that and other cartoonists too. But Dwayne is, I think, stands out in today's uh, environment as a very unique uh, success story. So here we are, uh, Dwayne and myself in conversation about, first, about his path and, and how he got there and what put him on the road and what it entails. And then we get into some talking about comics and cartooning and some unsung cartoonists, uh, as well as talking about our mutual hero uh, and mutual hero worship of Charles Schultz and Peanuts. So uh, I hope you enjoy this, this interesting and, and uh, very um, unique episode. Hello, Dwayne. How are you? I am absolutely amazing. Thank you very much for having me. I have to say, last night, getting ready for this interview, it was like Christmas Eve for me. I oh, could man. not wait to wake up and start the day because this is a conversation I've been waiting my whole life to have, talking about cartooning and Charles Schultz. I've been gearing up my whole life for this moment right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I hope it lives up to those kinds of expectations, but, uh, um, you know, uh, having seen your videos and, and uh, knowing the kind of uh, wealth of knowledge you have and excitement and enthusiasm you have for comics and cartooning. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be a great talk and I'm excited about it too. So Dwayne, you have a really, really interesting background and an interesting career path that is not the usual path for a cartoonist. It, it involves multiple talents from disparate fields. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started and what put you on the path towards these presentations you do for young people and adults across the country. Well, uh, I write and draw a comic strip series entitled Zed, and I've been writing and drawing that since I was 15 years old. And so I'm going on 24 years now with that. And I've always wanted to be a cartoonist. I never wanted to be anything else other than a cartoonist because when I discovered the work of Charles Schultz when I was four, five, six years old, I knew that's where my path lied. So I spent the rest of my life dedicated to becoming a cartoonist. So then when I had my comic strip, 
my career path has been forged by a great amount of failure because as soon as I signed my first syndication contract with a very small syndicate at the age of 15 years old, a few uh, months later, they went out of business. So I was still drawing my comic strip for my weekly hometown newspaper. Uh, a couple years later, I received a book contract and a full scholarship to college uh -huh. on the exact same day. The book contract uh -huh. was from Plan 9 Publishing, uh, and the offer to a full theater scholarship was from a small school, the University of Akron, located in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So that was a good day to go to the mailbox. Yeah. And then <laughs> after college was over, uh, my book deal was done because Plan 9 also went out of business oh, and also had another syndicate in between that time also go out of business. So by the time I graduated college, I'd already put out a business two newspaper syndicates, and one book publisher, which is the wrong way to go on the ladder to success. <laughs> and the only thing I have going for me at all is that I'm not afraid to be in front of an audience. That's from my theater training. I discovered theater at an early age. A lot of cartoonists are very shy. They want to hide behind their work, their sketch pad, and I understand that completely. I don't have any problem getting in front of an audience to perform. And I just put those two together as well as I could. Carl Reiner, when he was creating the Dick Van Dyke show, he said he had his unique piece of real estate. And that real estate was he was a husband, he was a father, and he was a comedy writer. So he just took everything that made him unique and turned it into the Dick Van Dyke show. So what made me different and unique is that I draw and write a comic strip. I am comfortable being in front of an audience, so I just simply merge those two, and I'm not reinventing the wheel because uh, Charles Dickens, even though we all know the work of Charles Dickens, he made the majority of his income not as an author but as a speaker. He would give sold-out lectures, uh, readings of his works. I mean, if you can imagine being in the late 1800s in August in New York City and flocking to a theater to hear Charles Dickens give a reading of A Christmas Carol, that's what actually happened. So I'm not doing anything different, but I just, I love drawing my comic strip and getting a reaction from my audience that way. I love being in front of an audience and inspiring every single audience I reach. So for me, both of those things work and they make me very fulfilled. It's fascinating. I didn't really realize that Dickens made most of his money as a as a, uh, a lecturer reading his books. That's really interesting. Um, you're also drawing from a, a grand tradition in cartooning, which is the chalk talk, which has gone back to, I mean, probably precedes uh, uh, Windsor McKay and and uh, the 20th century. But, uh, you know, certainly Windsor McKay started off by doing chalk talks in front of an audience, um, drawing and, and doing cartoons for an audience as they shouted out names or or uh, people they wanted to see him draw, celebrities and whatnot, and that before he, he you know, graduated to doing animation and taking that on the road. But that was a venerable tradition that you've combined as well. So you've got the theater background and you've got the cartooning and you bring them together and really kind of an updated version of an old school, uh, you know, medium, if you will. And uh, that's pretty cool because I don't know anybody else who's out there doing it like you're doing it these days. I appreciate that because the magic for me whenever I was younger was actually seeing a cartoonist 
create his comic strip um, live, which never happened. I live in a very small town in Ohio. I was locked. If I wanted to learn how to become a great farmer, I had plenty of people around me that could have helped me. But to be a cartoonist, I was writing letters uh, for weekends on end to all my favorite cartoonists, seeking their knowledge, you know, seeking their advice. And then uh, a couple of years um, back in 1989, I believe, there was a special on television called uh, Happy Birthday Garfield. And it was celebrating 10 years of Jim Davis's Garfield. And in that show, they had a segment from the National Cartoonist Society of all my favorite cartoonists, all in front of a le- easel, in front of an audience, creating their comic strip characters. And I would replay that one-minute segment over and over and over again because it just fascinated me so much. Well, to be able to draw your characters, you know, in front of a, a an audience like that uh, without hesitation and without fear uh, is really a rarity among, I think, cartoonists who tend to be, you know, very reclusive and, and shy about what they do. I know myself personally, uh, I always feel like I need to warm up. And when I'm drawing in front of people at a convention or something like that, I get even in front of students today, I get really nervous. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to screw something up here. I know it. And then I start to shake. And then, you know, uh, I have a problem with it. So having the confidence in your abilities and the surety of hand to stand up in front of people, uh, that's and, and draw and do it multiple times, uh, one over one after another, that's really impressive. And it's a real rare skill. Well, I can tell you a secret. I still get nervous. Do you? Uh, every time before I perform, I, I, I have uh, a syndrome where I'm praying that whoever organized the event, whether it be a school, whether it be a conference, whatever have you, that they will come up and say, look, we made a terrible mistake. We're not going to have time to bring you on. We appreciate your time. Here's your check. You can go home now because I am just that nervous. But uh, my training in theater, you use that nervousness. You work through it. And I learned that when you are nervous, it just shows that you care, that you want to present your best foot forward at all times. So I'm still nervous. I'm still shaking. In fact, there have been two times where I was shaking so bad, I actually had to hide my drawing hand behind my back so that people couldn't see it was shaking during the process. The first was when I was invited to speak of all places at a retirement community. And they said, we have a very special resident that you will enjoy meeting. And I went into his uh, apartment and it was Tom Wilson, the creator of Ziggy. Oh my gosh. And he was the first person I ever wrote a fan letter to. And I knew who he was. I was able to shake his hand. I was able to talk with him. He had almost lost his uh, power of speech at that point. But he could still nod and comprehend what I was saying. And he was uh, a very interesting man, to say the least. But I loved Ziggy. I loved his creation. But as I'm talking to him in his apartment, my uh, attention's averted because in the corner is his Emmy Award that he won for his Christmas special, Ziggy's Gift. And the Emmy Award is very large. And it glistens in the sun. And it took away all my attention. And he noticed this. So then half hour later, when I'm on stage getting ready to speak, they wheel him to the front row. He has a blanket over his lap and he has a smile on his face. 
And as I'm speaking, as I'm really getting into things, the audience is starting to really enjoy themselves. Right when I get to every single punchline of a joke that I have, he reaches under his blanket and pulls out that Emmy Award and shakes it at me just a little bit, just so I can see it. And that causes me to lose all my concentration. And then he laughs to himself and he puts the Emmy Award back under his blanket because he knows where all the jokes are coming from. And I always say that you should meet your heroes because it's an experience unlike any other. But to have them try to take apart your performance and try to stumble you up on stage, that is something special that I'm going to have with me the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, you could take that one of two ways, right? But I, I'm glad you took it You took it and made something constructive of it. And I actually can see in Zed some of Ziggy, uh, some of that line work that was in Ziggy and, and some of the gentle kind of quality that is in Ziggy is sort of evident in Zed as well. You are, um, you're making my heart sing right now. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. It's, it's definitely there. And I can see that in the way that you want to reach a very broad audience and, and really want to be um, in the work, I think, very friendly to children as well, you know, uh, something that, that reaches them as well as reaches adults. Um, while I'm listening to you, I mean, there's so many, it's interesting because there's so many different aspects to the story you're telling that are of interest and worth uh, visiting again. You said you were trained as a theater performer. Have you ex uh, played different roles on the stage? Are you still involved in theater? Do you do community theater? Have you oh, been my goodness. Uh, yeah, uh, I try. I do. Th I love theater. That was my uh, second love. First was always cartooning. But I came from a very small town that had a really exceptional theater program. It was something you wouldn't expect. And we were ranked nationally through wow. our theater department. And we performed not from an auditorium. We actually performed our productions from a gymnasium. So uh, not only was I always involved in theater, always uh, acting, singing, and dancing, usually in the comedic second banana uh, comedy roles, but I was also involved in high school in uh, the National Forensics League, and that's the speech and drama team. So every single week you travel to a new school, you have a 10-minute speech that you present in front of your fellow competitors uh, three times through the course of the day. You get judged, and then you walk away with a trophy if you've done a good job. And then you elevate going to state and then nationals doing that. So that produces a lot of confidence that you can get up in front of almost any environment mm -hmm. and perform to the best of your ability. But for me, when I'm backstage, when I'm putting on my makeup, when I'm putting on my costume, I am just in my element. I am ready to perform. It is so much fun for me. I don't do it as much anymore uh, simply because I get that same thrill of an audience just being myself, presenting a program with myself and an easel and a marker. Yeah. So that, that has not gone away. In fact, the last play that I ever did, it was about four or five years ago, was a play that I actually wrote. Oh, just wow. To, just to see if I could do it. And yeah. I had an idea. I presented it to my wife. I never written a play before, and I expected her to do what all wives do, which was shoot down my idea and say, look, you got to go outside and mow the lawn right now. We got stuff to do today. But she instead said, you know what? That's a really good idea. You need to write that as a play. And the play is all about an egotistical cartoonist uh, in the 1940s. So, of course, I cast myself. I believe in typecasting. So I played the part. I cast my wife as my love interest. 
I uh-huh. used my actual drawing board on stage, and that's the one time where reality and uh, the world of the play kind of merged into one time. I didn't know where I was because even though I was on stage playing this character, I'm having a conversation with my real wife that I probably had two years before, although now it's used uh, for dramatic purposes as a play. Mm-hmm. So that was the only time that I wasn't quite sure where I was when I was on stage, but casting myself as the love interest, as the romantic lead, directing the show, writing the show, that just wore me out to the point that I have not been on stage in a acting role since. Wow. Um, so is your, your, does your wife, obviously she acted in this role, so she she's, has a theater background also? She does not. My wife is actually a professional ballroom dancer, and she owns oh, a wow. ballroom studio in um, in our in our hometown. Wow. Okay, that's really interesting too. So you guys are self-employed pretty much, and and uh, have your own businesses, both ballroom dancing and and your presentation and cartooning. Absolutely. So you can imagine how excited we were when we were able to buy a house because in this market, in this day and age, to be self-employed and to purchase your own house, boy, you really had to jump through a couple of hoops. Yeah, you do. When my mortgage broker, when he said, look, uh, we're going to get you this mortgage approved, I know a guy. I My first thought was, oh, my goodness, I'm in with the mob right now. They know <laughs> a guy. He's going to be crooked, but I'm going to get a house. That's all I thought the entire time. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I I can understand. Yeah. When you are self-employed, I mean, that's one of the problems that we've touched upon in the show over the last year or so is, uh, you know, cartoonists finding a way to make a living and a decent living these days is not an easy thing. And if you're doing it full time uh, and you are self-employed, you know, just getting something like a credit card can be difficult. And, uh, And to navigate the world as it is now without credit is is a real well practical impossibility so you know getting that's a great achievement and uh, i congratulate you both on that when did you when did you move into your home uh the same summer we were putting on that play that i just talked about (laughs) it was that was quite a summer it was a very hectic summer so we moved into a house that will be celebrating its 100th birthday in about four years okay and we're only the third owners So the people that move into this house, they do not leave. Uh And there's a lot of, um, I would say, history when it comes to my house because the land that my house is built on was once owned and occupied by President William McKinley. It was part of the William McKinley farm. In fact, as legend goes, my neighbor's house is the house that President McKinley actually lived in before his presidency. And the land that my house is built on was once owned and occupied by President William McKinley's chicken coop. (laughs) Okay, so you moved into McKinley's chicken coop. You know what? Uh, My ground is very fertile. I'm the first one to mow my lawn in the spring and the last one to mow it in the fall (laughs) because my ground has been fertilized by hundreds and hundreds of presidential chickens that roamed my land 120 years ago. Amazing, man. That's great. Oh, what a story. So, okay, so uh, the two of you come from these very interesting backgrounds and – and the theaters played a strong role. How many presentations have do you think you've done over the last however many years? And and what kind of venues have you done them in? You're talking about this uh, assisted living facility. 
where you met Tom Wilson. But yep. um, what what other kinds of places have you done your your presentation? Well, I call these uh, the, when I do a performance, say for a retirement community. These are upscale retirement communities that are so nice. They're like cruise ships that don't go anywhere. Wow. They are gorgeous facilities, and they really appreciate hearing stories about the classic Sunday funnies, stories from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So that's when I can delve back into my knowledge and make them appreciate the Sunday funnies in a brand new way and make them laugh at the exact same time. And then I do other performances where I'm performing at um, conferences, trade shows, uh, any time of any type of corporate event. And for those shows, I put on my suit and tie and I go out on stage and I'm telling almost the exact same stories. But the slant is, uh, is I'm telling stories about cartoonists from the point of view is that cartoonists are masters. They are simply masters of sales, marketing. Uh work ethic, leadership, customer service. I mean, when you have cartoonists that have been drawing the same comic strip for decades, they know something about customer service that um, businesses need to hear. So that's when I'm speaking in a corporate setting. And then I speak to a great amount of schools. I'm able to reach about 100 schools a year all over the country. My goal is to reach all 50 states by my 42nd birthday. I have three more years to go. I've reached 42 states so far. So I'm probably going to make that uh, goal a reality. And when I speak to schools, I'm doing a presentation about goal setting, literacy, and the importance of education, all while demonstrating cartoons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the one rule I have whenever I speak to a school is I've spoken at over 750 schools in my career so far. And my one rule is I will not have any technology with me on stage. The only thing I will have is a microphone. They try to make sure they have a PowerPoint presentation behind me. And I say, I don't want any of that. I want a piece of paper, a marker. I want these kids to actually see something being created without the aid of any kind of um, any technology. No interference at all from a screen, just a live person drawing a cartoon and the response is usually more overwhelming than not because it's something that doesn't get seen every single day sure and so i performed everywhere uh i've even performed at uh county and state fairs for wow. some reason they bring me in and say look we want to have you come and speak and my kids are like sure that sounds great because they know if i bring them along they're gonna get the deep fried oreos they're gonna get the corn dogs they're gonna get the funnel cakes and the last time i did that just for fun i went my kids were in the front row and i'm trying to speak i'm trying to put on the best show that i can and my kids are in the front row just chowing down on all of this glorious fair food that i cannot wait to get off the stage and join them with so basically they're trying to sabotage my performance as well because they're eating all this great food that i can't wait to be a part of so Mm -hmm. i perform almost anywhere with a microphone and an audience if i'm invited and so how how busy are you i mean um you're you're working five days a week six days a week i mean how often 
it's really interesting because when I had a regular real job, it was nine to five, Monday through Friday. Now that I'm self-employed, I have a regular schedule as well, but it's not like I'm traveling every single day of the week. If I spend a, a day traveling, the next day I can maybe hit three schools, possibly four if I'm scheduled in tight. So mm -hmm. in a given month, I'm only traveling maybe 10 days out of the month, which is not a lot. I'm home a lot more often than people think, but then I'm down in my, I work for my basement studio. So there's always work that has to be done down there because this is a one man operation, whether it be invoicing, marketing, uh, producing my comic strip, producing the books. There's always something interesting that needs to be done. And I do have a rule. I, my wife, enforces this rule as well as she can. I can wake up as early as I want to, but I cannot work late. I have to usually go to bed whenever she goes to bed, but I can wake up as early as I want to. So I will wake up first thing in the morning, usually before my kids wake up, put in an hour or so of work, make sure they get off to school okay, and then I go to the gym. Uh -huh. And I have a personal trainer. And this is important if you're self-employed. It's important to stay in shape uh, because I want to look good enough that way when i die people say oh my goodness how'd that happen instead of saying oh yeah we were expecting that one for a long time so i go to the gym work out with my trainer for about a uh, half hour 45 minutes and i go back to the studio and i'm working until three o'clock because three o'clock i gotta put everything down and make sure i go pick up my kids from school and then the rest of the time i'm i'm dead we're going to the grocery store we're going to the park to play basketball Right. Because the one thing that really surprised me, especially when I was younger and finding out now, is that cartoonists are real people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. That's true. It's interesting. Uh, I was talking to Ray Billingsley the other day and uh, talking about a one-man operation, and he still – still Curtis is a, a one-man operation as well. And, you know, a lot of folks don't realize when you're doing it professionally on a, on a self-employed basis, it's, it's a huge task. There's so many different jobs to be done within that, within the realm of the, the cartoonist as you work by yourself. I mean, it's, there's, you know, as you were talking about the invoicing, as well as there is the drawing of the comic strip and then putting it all together and formatting it for publication in whatever way it's going to be published, which is, you know, it's, a, it's all tremendous. All those little tasks add up to a lot of time the hardest part is convincing people that you actually have a real job that yeah right i know yeah because you know drawing cartoons what is that you know? <laughs> well, and my wife has the same thing because oh it's beautiful you, you just get to sit around and dance all day nope that's not her job at all and then i was even speaking at a school i did two great presentations i got the kids really motivated they were really inspired even the staff had a great time which if you can get through and inspire a teacher that's seen every assembly and every single presentation known to man and you can really reach them you know you're doing your job and you're cooking with gas but the principal came up to me afterward and said that was a great presentation uh, i have to ask a question what else do you do and i said i don't understand the question he said well you're a cartoonist i said that's right he goes but i've never heard of you and i said well, okay i said let me ask you a question what is your job here he said i'm the principal i said okay what's your other job he said, yeah. I don't understand. And I said, I've never heard of you either. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, the truth is that most cartoonists working outside of the realm of car other cartoonists aren't really known as public individuals. Uh, and, and a lot of people expect, well, when you come, you, you meet them 
they ask you, oh, really, what have you, what do you do? Is it in the newspaper? Would I have seen it someplace? And, and the reality is, is that there's so many different cartoonists working and the venues in which they work and the audiences that they reach are so small compared to what they used to be that the idea of, of a name being known uh, the way that Charles Schultz is known or, or something of that nature uh, is, is a real rarity. And, uh, well, my go-to response is that when someone says, I think I might have heard of you, I might have seen this comic strip, my go-to response is, no, you're probably thinking of Ziggy. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I, I wanted to go back and touch upon, as a young person living in a small town, and this was true of me too, uh, I lived in a rather small community, and although Johnny Hart lived here, getting to him or finding access to him was nearly impossible. So finding out what it meant to be a cartoonist and how to become a cartoonist, uh, what the tools and techniques were, uh, what the size of the original artwork was, simple things like that, and then how you apply, all of those things were mysterious to me as a kid. And I didn't have the ingenuity that you had uh, <laughs> to, to sit down and write letters you must have written letters to the syndicates because getting their addresses must have been, I yep. mean, at least when that, I was growing up, that stuff wasn't publicly available. That's all you had to do. I would write hundreds of letters to syndicated cartoonists and I would send them in care of their syndicate. Uh -huh. And then I would wait by the mailbox every single summer when I was home from school and there would be a, an envelope, there'd be a letter, there might be a drawing. One of the best fan letters, it's surprising you said this, I ever received in return was from Ray Billingsley. He wrote me a beautiful letter. Really? And so whenever I meet these cartoonists, because uh, even though I've been a professional cartoonist for many years, even though I've been a member of the National Cartoonist Society for five years now, I still consider myself to be, in the world of small potatoes, I'm a tater tot. If there was a big banquet for the NCS, I think they would put me at the kiddie table. I'm just happy to be in the room. So whenever I meet these cartoonists, I show them the letters that they sent to me when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, and they're surprised that I kept them and i'm thinking are you kidding these are pearls of wisdom that you're giving me so from collecting all these different letters i slowly started to learn uh the different aspects of how large original artwork is and then what materials to use right. so yeah it just it, it was piecing it together it wasn't like today when my son has a question he can go on youtube and he can find as many videos as he wants to, giving right. him the answer to the question. I right. really had to scrape a little bit to find out a few things. It's it's wonderful how accessible information is today. Absolutely. In the in in the old days, in the days when we were growing up, and I'm a little bit older than you, more than a little <laughs> bit older than you. But uh, you know, as I said, the, all of this information, it was there were no books that gave you the specifics about how to do this. There were no pathways that were outlined. There were no YouTube videos. There, there wasn't anything like that. And so, it, you know, if you didn't have access to the, the actual source material, i.e. the cartoonists themselves, um, to, you know, pass along their information, it was, it was Im nearly impossible. And I know for me, I spent years drawing at the wrong sizes, you know, in the wrong, uh, proportions, um, because I didn't know what the proportions had to be. And when you are isolated and alone, uh, and as I was as a, a kid, as a cartoonist, you know, I, I had friends, but I mean, there weren't, there weren't other cartoonists around. I was pretty much alone in that regard as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So there was nobody really to commiserate with or ask about. So it was very, very difficult to figure it out. And after a while, you also began to realize, you know, it, it was hard to get your work into the hands of anybody. So I know myself, I found it so frustrating that, you know, I turned to other things and that's in one way or another why I ended up in the fine arts as I did for as long as I, I did. But it's also interesting. You were writing the cartoonists when you were, what, 10, 11 years old. I was writing the baseball players. I mean, I, 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 I was a big Yankees fan and I spent a whole summer, I'll never forget this, writing every single baseball player on the Yankees roster. It didn't matter who they were. Oh, wow. Just saying, you were my favorite baseball player. Can I please have an autographed photograph? Right. Yeah, and, I did the exact same thing with cartoonists. Yeah, we, I, <laughs> because it's more productive I, to do what you did. Well, I told you earlier that the only reason my wife married me is because I got down on one knee when I proposed and I said, hey, marry me. I don't watch sports on television, which <laughs> to a wife is a great deal. <laughs> It's a great deal until she finds out that you're a cartoonist and, and becoming a cartoon, being a cartoonist, I mean, is like you're in your own head all of the time. The uh, only problem is that it was when my wife and I eloped. So we knew each other for five months and then ran off and eloped. Most impetuous oh thing and best thing I've ever done in my entire life. When she found out I wanted to be a cartoonist, it was when uh, my father-in-law found out that, okay, my daughter ran away and married some guy. He's a senior in college. He is a theater major, but he has a dream of becoming a cartoonist. You could just see that he was making space in the basement for us to live because surely this man is not going to be able to provide a life for my daughter. So luckily I've been able to prove him wrong. I, I'm familiar with that interview. <laughs> <laughs> with that, that happened in, in our case too. You know, there was always that kind of doubt. Uh, but my wife had faith in me and that's, that's, that's how I got as far as I got anyway. Isn't that the scariest thing in the world? <laughs> yeah. And, but it's something to treasure. That's for sure. Uh, and not take for granted, and it's well, real easy to do after a number of years, but you well, don't. The last, the last real job that I had, I was selling uh, advertising for a weekly newspaper. Mm -hmm. And to show you what a great salesman I was, I could not even convince my boss to run my comic strip in this newspaper that I was working for. So <laughs> I, I wasn't a very good salesman, but I was fired. And to tell you how badly they wanted to get rid of me. Because I already told them I wanted to go down to part-time. I was earning more and more income from speaking engagements, things along those lines. I still wanted to have the safety net of a real job. So yeah. I was going to go down to part-time when the new year rolled around. Well, the Monday following Thanksgiving, I was in the office 9 o'clock in the morning. And I got called into his office. And I got fired on a Monday morning first thing. So they really wanted to get rid of me. I called my wife on the way home and I said, look, I'm going to make a career as being a professional cartoonist. And I'm going to do most of that from being in front of audiences speaking. And this is the point where I expect my wife to follow suit with me, freak out because we hardly had any money in the bank. She quit her job. We had a newborn oh at the time. So I really wanted her to freak out with me. But she said, I think that's a good idea, which... <laughs> to freak out all on my own so i didn't have any help that day <laughs> that's fabulous you know i mean it really it makes a difference if you have a partner who is supportive and and uh and there for you and uh believes in you and uh that's that's a real gift man that's a anyone real... anyone listening to this podcast i have one rule my wife deals with wedding couples every single day it, whoever you want to marry 
make sure you think they're smarter than you. It just makes <laughs> life easier. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can see the wisdom to that. And I kind of, now I'm thinking about my, my own marriage and I'm like, Hmm, you know, I think I followed that advice. So, uh, I lucky for me, but I didn't, I wasn't aware that, you know, I wasn't thinking that at the time, but I'm pretty sure that's what happened. <laughs> I think it worked out well for both of us just yeah. knowing that. <laughs> so, um, so who are some of the cartoonists that you reached out to and what are some of the, the letters that stand out to you? I know that the letter from Bud Blake, who, who does, who did Tiger for all those years, right? It was Tiger, wasn't it? Absolutely. Beautiful comic strip. Yeah. Beautiful comic strip, which I loved as a kid. It's still King features is still running it in reruns today. It's still popular. So you got a letter from Bud Blake who, and that inspired you in a lot of ways. Um, so tell me about that, but also tell me about some of the others that you've got that stand out in your mind. Well, I received beautiful works of art in the mail from, um, uh, Mark Trail, Jack, Jack Elrod, who was drawing wow. Mark Trail at the time. He sent me my first original comic strip. I got to see where he was having trouble on certain parts. I got to see all the bumps and bruises. I saw the warts and all of an original comic strip. And then I received wonderful letters in the mail from, I said earlier, Ray Billingsley, Curtis, great letters. Uh, Mike Peters, Mother Goose and Grimm, another great letter. Rob Armstrong, Jumpstart, fabulous letter. Um, lots of great cartoonists, and they would send beautiful works of art, original drawings, pictures of them by their drawing board, which being a young kid, never seeing a drawing board, that made me really excited. Mm -hmm. And then one day I went to the mailbox, and there was a little letter written on a post-it note. It was just, Dear Dwayne, work, study, learn, try. Bud Blake. That was it. <laughs> he wrote it on a post-it note. And I, I, at first I thought, what an amazing jip. I yeah. wanted a drawing. I wanted something cool. Because even cartoonists, even their stationery is really cool stationery. Yeah. But he yeah, wrote it on cool. a boring old post-it note. And it wasn't until many years later that I just thought about those words. And every single, because I try to consume as much knowledge as I can, not just from the Sunday funnies, not just from the comics page, but I try to read as much as I can. And in all the books I've ever read about personal development, about motivation, along those lines, uh, Tony Robbins, Jim Rohn, um, Jack Canfield, Every single word they say boils down to those four words that Bud Blake told me. It, they can all filter into one of those categories of work, study, learn, try. And uh, only a cartoonist could be able to boil it down to its pure essence like that and be that succinct and be so spot on without you without a wasted word. Yeah, so, well, that's that was the best letter I ever got. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I mean, because it's been the basis for a whole career in a way absolutely uh, you know that's it's amazing but that's what comes out of when you do that kind of editing there's a whole wellspring of thoughts and ideas that comes from uh simplifying and simplifying something you know to to its essence if you will that that really a lot of times offers the uh listener to you know the opportunity to go off in their own direction which certainly that's what happened here what are some of the other cartoonists that come to mind? I know that I've seen on some of your uh, Instagram posts and whatnot that you also kind of have a collection of interesting comics art that may not be well known. I mean, cartoonists who some people may not have heard of before. 
I'm not sure if it's a collection. It's more I'm just trying to preserve this uh-huh. original artwork because these are all cartoonists that slipped through the cracks. They had careers. They raised families. They did their job to the best of their ability, but they've gotten forgotten. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't want that to happen to any cartoonist. So I'm on a personal crusade to try to make sure this artwork stays preserved, even if it's just by me. Uh, enjoying it in my studio or some artwork hangs in my wife's ballroom studio. But I want to protect older cartoonists that have been forgotten because I know I have enough self-awareness that I'm going to be one of those one day. So I want someone to do the same thing for me that I'm doing for them. And I collect most of this original artwork uh, mostly on, on eBay. Mm-hmm. And my criteria usually is if it's a cartoonist that I've never heard of, Mm-hmm. I want to own that original work of art. And in collecting this and then learning about the cartoonist, you go down some amazing rabbit holes and learn some amazing things. I had a pen pal for many, many years. His name was Rick Hackney. Mm-hmm. And Rick and his brother Bill, they drew a comic strip in the 1950s and 60s called Sir Bagby. It only appeared in a couple hundred newspapers, if that. When it was with a very small syndicate in San Francisco, then it jumped over to McClure Syndicate Mm -hmm. in the 1960s, and then it ended up being self-syndicated by them. And he had an amazing story. He was, uh, I believe he told me, classmates with Charles Schultz, of all people. They They went to the same high school. And, of course, no one's ever heard of this cartoonist. And then he was a World War II bombardier. And he was I, I hope I'm not telling tales out of school. I believe he told me he was a POW mm-hmm. for uh, an, for a certain amount of time. And then he was a commercial artist. And he created this comic strip. And I read an article about it one day. And I just had to write him a letter. And that started a friendship that went on for a couple of years. A couple of letters back and forth. And so that is one, one of my prized work of arts that I have is an original Sir Bagby from the 1950s and 60s. And I actually didn't get that from him. I got that on eBay. And it's criminal the amount of money I paid for these comic strips. I think I got it for $12. Wow. Another work of art that I have, I have two original comic book pages from uh, the comic book Sad Sack. Okay. Oh, yeah, I remember it. Yeah. And, and they're drawn by the cartoonist. I hope I don't uh, forget his name. Uh, Frank Ridgeway. If I'm not mistaken, might want to check that out. If you're on Google right now, check that out. But he was a cartoonist that he drew the comic book for about 40 years. And in all that time, Harvey never returned any of his original comic art to him. 40 years of work, and they never returned a single work of art back to the cartoonist. They kept all of it. When I was able to purchase two of those comic book pages from him, he has long since passed away. Uh, when I was able to purchase those, I got them for $20. Oh, my gosh. I know. know, It's it's a shame, you know, when you think about it. He didn't get any of his work back. Today, you'd be able to take that work and you know, sell it at conventions and whatnot, make a, you can make a good living, you know, part-time living from just selling your artwork and, Absolutely. Uh, you know, as a kind of a accessory to your, your main work. And it's, it's really, really criminal to hear that, you know, he had all this work, which he probably never saw again. And, and it went off someplace and now somebody else has got it. And it's great that you have it and you're preserving it. It's just kind of sad that he didn't, they didn't return it to him so he could, you know, make some money off of that. Cause I'm sure it was difficult making money as a cartoonist on sad sack 
Well, this is a this is a time when you remember that no one valued the original art. Okay, right. the art's yeah. been produced. It's done. It has no value anymore. So uh, that's why I'm do, that's why I do this. I want to gather all that artwork as much as I can, even if it's just for my own studio. So that way, these cartoonists, their story is told and their talent is validated because these are amazing works of art that I love seeing every single day. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think it's amazing too. We we do tend to forget there there. Are, if you go on Instagram and you go, you know, looking through cartoonists and uh, you know, hashtag cartoonists or whatever, you see z- zillion pieces of great work by people who whose names will will not be remembered by history. You know, uh, right. obviously, because there's very few people, you know, who who rise to that level and whose names are preserved in you know the history of comics books uh, uh, that we pick up here and there, but. The same is true for the we tend to think, you know, we know of everything that that was going on in comics and cartooning in the 40s and 50s or whatnot. And the reality is there are uh, hundreds of people like Frank Ridgway, who you're talking about now, whose names were not recorded and who, who contributed to this profession and cr- contributed to the history, but you know, whose work otherwise has gone unheralded and uh, unrecognized, you know, eventually. Uh, some some artists do rise to you know the top the uh, out of that that sea of unknowns you know uh, in those days when nobody signed their work uh, I think of people like you know Al Wiseman and Fred O'Toole who worked on the Dennis the Menace comic books right uh, you know I think of Harry Lucy who worked on uh, uh, Archie for all those years you know there are some artists who whose names are repeated often enough by other cartoonists usually. You know, that that um, you begin to find that they they too begin to be revered by fans and artists alike. And then, of course, what happens is the original artwork becomes way too expensive for, right. for artists to buy. Well, I have an original work of art. It's hanging in my wife's ballroom studio right now. It's a 1947 Sunday comic strip. So it's incredibly large. Mm-hmm. And it is of uh, Doc Syke which is a comic strip that ran for many years uh, through United Features. I think United. I might have to check on that. But it was drawn by a man named Ving Fuller. And he actually had a long career. And he drew this comic strip for many, many years. And the turning point, the interesting part I found out about this cartoonist was around 1955, he changed the slant of his entire comic strip. It was about a doctor, a psychiatrist, uh, very adult humor. He changed the slant to be about kids so he could compete with this brand new comic strip everyone was talking about called Peanuts. And that's almost what ended the entire comic strip for him was him changing it, trying to compete with this young upstart. And I found that to be so fascinating that cartoonists in 1955 were scared to death of this little comic strip that was very simply drawn drawn by a man no one ever heard of out of minnesota charles schultz yeah yeah well you know by 55 what was it 55 or 56 he won his first rubin award and uh so and you can actually see you know uh, you're you're a fan like i have uh i am you've probably gone back to the peanuts complete or or some of the reprint collections wherever that you may get them and um and see the development of the strip by 55 56 57 it's really becoming peanuts and um certainly by 56 late 56 57 it is so it's pretty by that time it's all it's pretty unique it's pretty strong um the humor is unlike anything else that was out at the time and uh so it was picking up steam even though it was i I don't know how many papers it was in 
getting at that point, 300, 400 or something, but uh, it was picking up steam by the mid 50s. So I can see why people would would start to think, hmm, maybe I had to think about doing a kid's trip, you know? Right. Uh, but that's really that's really fascinating. So let's talk about Charles Schultz. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's talk about Charles Schultz. That's that's what the podcast is all about. So, um, so if I'm not mistaken, you may have made a, a, a pilgrimage out to Santa Rosa at some point or another to to visit um, the Schultz Studio and Schultz Museum. Have you not done only, that? Not only visit against their better judgment, they invited me out as a speaker. So oh. I was able to go out there and present a program. Um, and walking into, to set the scene, walking into the Schultz Museum, I knew that I was home. This was <laughs> a religious experience for me. And I was, it was as if a magic lasso wrapped around me and I was pulled into a corner of the gallery, in the corner of the museum on the first floor. And I'm staring at an original Charles Schultz comic strip. It's a beautiful Sunday. Uh, comic strip and the date on it is February 10th 1980 and that's an easy date for me to remember that's my exact birthday I was born on February 10th 1980 so mm -hmm. I'm looking at the comic strip that ran in newspapers the exact day that I was born and I'm so naive that I thought to myself what a nice thing for the museum to do for someone <laughs> like me they must have known I was coming <laughs> and then uh, there was a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and I know exactly who it is. No one else that's there as a patron knows who this is. It's a very, it's a woman, a little over five feet tall. It was Jeannie, uh, Charles Schultz's wife. And she wanted to meet me because she heard that I was an incredible fan of her husband. And she wanted to ask me why his work meant so much to me. And, of course, this was a conversation that I could have an entire hour to go on about. Yeah. But we spoke for about a half hour. And then she said she had to go. She had an exercise class, I believe. And she gave me a hug right before I had to jump on stage and give my presentation. And if you can find video of that on YouTube of me speaking at the Schultz Museum, you will see that my entire body is shaking because I just received a hug from the woman that used to hug every single day, my hero, Charles Schultz. Yeah, that's fantastic. Wow. Uh, that's incredible. What, a, what an honor to be invited out there to speak and, uh, and to give a presentation and, and, uh, really amazing. That's fantastic. So, so how, how long were you there? Was it just an overnight or were you there a couple of days? Did you live in the museum for a week? You know, you know uh, can I tell you that I'm a horrible tourist? I don't enjoy being away from my home or my family. So whenever I travel, I'm grumpy. I'm miserable. <laughs> I just want to be home. I so know. I was only at the Schultz Museum for one day. And then the next day I hopped back on a plane and happily returned to Ohio, knowing that I, if there's one place I do want to return to, it is that museum because there is so much to see. In fact, the one thing that they should not have let me do was they took me into the archives where the, uh, the curators work mm -hmm. and they handed me some gloves and they said, you oh. can look through whatever you want wow so i was looking through scrapbooks and i was looking through letters and i know i was bothering them because i was asking questions left and right uh, mm -hmm. i almost got kicked out of the tour because i was finishing the tour guide sentences i just knew so much about charles schultz so i, I was a nuisance the entire day i was there because i was just such a fan 
um, enjoying the entire day. So if anyone is around the Santa Rosa area and can spend a day at the Charles Schultz Museum, I highly recommend it. I could have spent a couple more days there, actually. So when you you were looking at those originals and handling them and and uh, you know taking them all in, what what stood out to you? Uh, what well, what qualities stood out to you? I was go- I wasn't going through the strips really. I was going through the uh, the business archives. I was going through really? the letters uh, from between the syndicate and Charles Schultz and just different things that were just collected and just in boxes. Oh my gosh. And I, I was and looking through them. I'm realizing, Oh my goodness, he's drawing a comic strip that's read by millions all over the world every single day. And he still has to deal with this and deal with this business problem. He's not just drawing a comic strip. He's running a business. And that's what really impressed me. And then just to be in that environment, oh, I can't, I can't say enough good things about the, the great work that's done at the Schultz Museum. Uh, because yeah. when I was younger, the one thing that I had in my hometown was a library. Uh-huh. And, you know, a very small library. So the, the section for comic strips and comic books was probably three or four books. Most of those were Charles Schultz. The rest were Jim Davis's Garfield. So mm-hmm. the big coffee table books about Charles Schultz sitting at his drawing board, giving you little snippets about his day drawing the comic strip. That's really how I learned how to write and draw a comic strip was from those coffee table books. Mm-hmm. So when you are in the presence of his actual drawing board on the second floor of the museum, oh, yeah. your, your breath gets taken away from you when you think about peanuts and when you think about you know schultz's work um what what do you bring forward from his from the comic strip peanuts and and from everything that schultz did as a cartoonist for one thing the one thing he did that really changed the spectrum was he was honest Mm -hmm. He, he drew humor from from a melancholy place of it wasn't, you know, let's have our characters slip and fall on a banana peel every single week. He right. really gave the characters a deep soul. And even though these were children, they had fears, they had hopes, they had anxieties. And that's what really changed things because I, I never met the man, but in everything I've learned about him, he had those exact same fears and anxieties. He wasn't always a happy-go-lucky kind of a man. And none of us really are. We all have those different parts. But when I write and draw my comic strip, there's only so many avenues that I can explore because I can't get really deep and dark. I can't write that way. Mm -hmm. I turn off that part of my personality. And then whenever I'm around my family, I can get very deep and very dark, you know, complaining about, oh, I have to pay this bill again, or, oh, I have to mow this lawn again, or, oh, I'm worried about this, or this is really concerning me. But I can't do that when I'm writing my comic strip. It's amazing he was able to dig deep into that. In fact, uh, he wrote that when he was going through his first divorce, I'm sorry, his only divorce, I apologize about that, when he was divorcing his wife, that's when he really enjoyed what he was creating in the comic strip because he was so sad in his personal life that he was amazed he was able to bring that out and create work that he was very proud of i find that to be incredibly interesting yeah well uh, i think that that is one of those uh conundrums that oftentimes uh 
you know, great creativity comes from a place of, of stress and, uh, and, uh, and difficulty, uh, hardship. I know, you know, there are plenty of stories in the, in the history of, of art and popular culture wherein, um, a creative person is, is, you know, come up against some kind of hardship or some kind of difficulty and they've, they've transcended it or used it to fuel their creativity. A lot of times it is grist for the mill and, uh, and, but, but, on the other hand, um, it's great to be able to sustain a career without having to rely on that. And, right. <laughs> you know, and I think Schultz did that. I think, you know, he had this well of uh, frustration that he drew on that came out of his youth uh, and this competitive streak that he had. And he was able to draw on that throughout his life, whether he was happy in his personal life or he was unhappy in his personal life at any given moment. Uh, he was still able to go back and pull from that. And it, it also formed this unique sense of humor that is, is based in the kind of foibles that we encounter every day. And, and not always in a, you know, his humor came out of this place of, of no matter what you do, you know, no matter how pumped up you get, somebody's going to puncture your balloon at some point or another, whether it's Lucy or somebody else. And, uh, you know, that never left him. And it's really kind of interesting as successful as he became, uh, as, as well thought of as he was, as, you know, revered as he was and loved in life as he was, uh, at the same time, that material that he, you know, those experiences he had as a young person, um, that was enough to fuel a lifetime's, uh, resentment. <laughs> if you will, or a lifetime's creativity, you know? Well, I had a revelation, and you can uh, weigh in on this, but uh, in 1948, when he was offered a contract with NEA Services out of Cleveland, Ohio, they flew him out because they wanted to produce Little Folks, the comic strip he was drawing for the St. Paul Pioneer Press, as a Sunday-only feature. And this was before Charlie Brown, before Snoopy, before Lucy. The style is there. The humor is there. The characters are not there because these are standalone panel comic strips. And what scared me is that just imagine a world where NEA went forward with their contract. And then Charles Schultz is drawing this Sunday-only comic strip. He might still be staying art instructor. He might have an okay career. He might draw it for 40-some years. And then he would be forgotten. We would never yeah. have Snoopy and Charlie Brown. That scared me when I thought about that. Well, you know, uh, Dwayne, that that does point to something. I mean, there is a circumstance. There is chance. There's an element of chance involved in all of this. And success is sometimes the meeting of great uh, ability, uh, great preparation, but also timing. Right. And the right people being receptive to what you're doing. And I think that a lot of times we underestimate the role of being in the right place at the right time uh, and the right partners. Like, for example, the Beatles had George Martin. And so without George Martin, you really you're not going to get the Beatles. You don't have a sympathetic ear. You don't have somebody who can guide them musically and can can work with them, uh, you know, creatively. Um, They're simpatico, you know, with one another. Uh, and that kind of relationship is just fortuitous. It's chance really in a lot of ways. And what happens 
to Schultz, you know, you're talking about NEA. And then a couple of years later, he, he went off to New York and signed his contract with, uh, were they United then or Universal? I, I don't remember. Uh, it, was, it was United then. United. Yes. Yeah. And so he signs the contract with them. But the day he goes, he, he sent in these single panel strips. And he shows up there with a portfolio. Well, he decided, okay, I'll, I've got the single panel stuff. I'll also do some four panel things just to show them I can do something else, you know. And so they get there and they look at the work and they go, you know, I think we'll go with the four panel stuff. And the same thing is true if they had not made that decision. Right. To go with the four panels as opposed to the single panel. Uh, what you're saying about him is absolutely true. We would have ended up with something. Would it have been a weaker Dennis the Menace? I don't really know. You know, I don't think Schultz's strength myself was in those single panel cartoons. It's clear, you know, that the, his strength came out of the development of these extraordinarily uh, lovable but also troubled characters. Absolutely. And and their interactions with one another that allowed him to express all of this inner angst that's going on. But but a uh, single panel strip just does not allow you the character development. It just doesn't. That's why, you know, the Argyle sweater or, or Farside or any of those single panel strips, they shy away from, you know, recurring characters. And, and in a lot of ways that suits, you know, social media and the time we're in. But um, with Schultz, the strength is in the, re the recurring characters and the depth of those characters and the humor that arises out of them and their, their, their psychology. Uh, that wouldn't have happened with a single strip. Look at Dennis the Menace, as beautiful right. as that strip is, as beautifully constructed. It doesn't offer the insights that Schultz does. And Schultz did it not only because he had the the wealth of, of ability and, and uh, insight and uh, uh, creativity to do that, but also because, you know, just out of luck and timing um, – you know, somebody looked at it and said, you know, I think we'll go with, with the four panel strip instead. And that might have had nothing to do with the quality of the work, you know, because they were looking, oh, this, this is great because an editor can take this and can rearrange the panels in any any way they want to. They can run it horizontally. They can stack them as a box. You know, they can run them vertically. That's great. That that allows them to free up space. Which that, that, that had to, I don't want to interrupt you, that had to wear on Charles Schultz's psyche because the comic strip was bought as a space saver. It was yeah. not valued. And that had to really weigh on him going down the road. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm sure it did, although he overcame that, but yeah, that, that also probably fueled, you know, one of those little things that fueled his fire, uh, as, as life oh, went on. Sure. And he always uh, resented the title, right? Yep. He always resented that title that was imposed upon him and, uh, and never, you know, I mean, it was something I think he carried to the end was, was his dislike of that title. And that was something he drew on too, you know, is absolutely. Is he had to overcome those things and he was going to overcome those things because he had that competitive streak, that ability to stand up for himself and he was going to fight back. And he fought back by making the greatest strip of all time, more or less, you know, just by creating this extraordinary uh, comic strip. And um, it, it says something about the man himself more than anything else, because we forget that even though he is the world's greatest cartoonist that ever lived and of course he's the first head on the cartooning mount rushmore but he, uh his tombstone have you ever seen a picture of his tombstone no i have not okay no. the great thing about his tombstone is that it does not say here lies charles schultz the greatest cartoonist that ever lived he gave the world charlie brown snoopy linus and lucy it says sergeant light machine gun squad world what? war ii that's all that it says 
Wow. He want, he was remembered as a World War II veteran. That is one of his proudest accomplishments. And that really says something about the man because you can go the other direction. And if you ever want to go on Google and have a really good time, type in Bob Kane tombstone. And oh. it'll take you to Bob Kane's tombstone, the creator of Batman. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to knock Bob Kane at all because I do not knock any cartoonist. You are all my brothers and sisters. We are all in this together. But Bob Kane's tombstone, it is a monologue. It yep. is about four or five paragraphs about um, just the creation of Batman. And it is really Trump trumpeting wow. the accomplishments of Bob Kane. It just shows the two different men that were both... <laughs> of two different sides of the same coin two very very different people yeah but yep. bob kane uh one on the one hand we have charles schultz who did, did everything on his comic strip for 50 years himself yep. from the writing and the lettering and the drawing and the inking he did it all having to do with his work bob kane on the other hand uh, you know, farmed out everything that he did to other people and rarely, if ever, gave them any credit for it. And uh, so, you know, Bill Finger, uh, obviously his co-creator of Batman is the is the first and foremost that comes to mind. But of course, there's Jerry Robinson and and Dick Sprang and a Dick whole Sprang. host of others. Right. Uh, who Absolutely. Remembered as well. It should be on that tombstone, too. Uh, but, you know, that wasn't Bob Kane's way. And so, uh, you know, two different worlds too: the comic strip and the comic book. But that just goes to show two different the, the, the difference in two different people. Well, when I sit down to write my comic strip and people find out that I do everything the old fashioned way, paper, pencil, pen, nothing is done on a computer. They ask why, because so much is done digitally now, and my response is so simple. My response is, that's not the way Charles Schultz did it. <laughs> and that that just sounds so simplistic, but if he did it with a pen and paper every day for almost 50 years, who am I to try to break the wheel? It's already been invented, and he did it better than anybody. Well, he did, uh, you know, and I, I, I love and respect what he did, but I have to say I switched to, and ha having never thought I ever would, I switched over to the iPad Pro and I'm, I'm about as happy as a clam. I, I have to tell you because, uh, I can draw anywhere. I take it with me everywhere. I'm glued to it. My wife, who's the one who bought it for me, by the way, uh, often, you know, chastises me for carrying it every place. Cause I'll work in bed. I'll I mean, you can just take it everywhere. And, and the, the, the apps that are being used now are just so great i mean procreate is just one of the most amazing uh tools in terms of draftsmanship and whatnot that, that i've ever encountered working digitally and and it's a fantastic uh fantastic tool but yeah there are lots of people who who continue to work traditionally and uh and for good reason you know because all of these these apps and digital tools that uh, we utilize today are still are based in that experience. And so when I teach uh, at school, when I teach students about cartooning, I have them start old school because, you know, you really need to have the feeling of what, you know, that brush on Bristol board feels like, you know, when you're going to. Absolutely. Um, before you, you start using the Apple pen on the iPad, 
you got to kind of know why you're choosing a certain brush point, you know, because the brush behaves this way and with this amount of pressure and it works this way with this amount of water in the ink, you know, I mean, there, there are different qualities to ink and, and, um, all of those are replicated, but you know, you want to feel the original first and then, you know, it can lead people off in really amazing directions, but you got to have that experience. Well, Dick Brown, uh, Dick Brown had a great quote about that, uh, the creator of Hagar the Horrible. He said, a comic strip should always look like it was drawn by hand. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I have to say that I'm, 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 that's one of the things I love, and I, and I, and I, I particularly in animation these days, you know, there's extraordinary things uh, being done in, um, you know, digital animation and computer-generated imagery and whatnot, obviously. You Without know, a doubt. So, Without a doubt, there's no denying that. But I'm like you, and again, I'm 20 years older than you. But um, like you, you know, I'm I'm steeped in the tradition of the hand drawn, and for me, uh, comics is about first and foremost, uh, it's the drawing that draws me in, as well as character right. and writing. But the drawing has got to be there, otherwise, I'm I'm turned off because I'm a visual person, and so drawing to me is just it's so intimate. Uh, it's, there's something so you're so connected to an individual through those marks of the hand. And, and the farther we get away from that, you know, and the less you feel that individual mark, the more distant I feel and the colder the work feels to me. And so like, I can look at, at things that are really beautifully done, like, you know, any of the Pixar films or whatnot, and I can admire them and, you know, uh, admire the writing, admire the, the, the cinematography, the work that's gone into making a film. But in terms of falling in love with the imagery, the way I fall in love with, you know, Charles Schultz's drawings or the drawings of Robert Crumb or the drawings of Dick Brown or, you know, Johnny Hart or Hank Ketchum or whomever we're talking about, Richard Williams, the great animator. Uh, you know, for me, it's all in, it's, it's the drawing, you know? And, uh, so I often, when I talk about that, I often go back to showing there's a wonderful film by Richard Williams, who, uh, you know, the great, uh, British animator who is just over 80 now he did under the, uh, production of Chuck, Chuck Jones. He created this wonderful version of a Christmas Carol, um, done in 1970 or 71. And it's just beautifully drawn, beautifully right. visualized. And, and when I show students that they know exactly what I mean, because it's, it's the drawing is right on the surface. And I just love that, you know, I just, um, there's something about pen and ink and there's something about the hand that moves that pen and ink that makes it uh, special and, and unique. And that's when, certainly what we get in Charles Schultz. When you look at Pixar, it's sleek. It yeah. looks beautiful. Oh, but yeah. when you look, when you look at original comic strip, you get to see where the cartoonist was having trouble. You see the pencil marks, you see the eraser scratches. Mm -hmm. You go, "Oh, he had trouble doing this," or "Oh, he changed this." Or you might see a comic strip that has a patch over it. Mm -hmm. And you just want to lift up that patch to see what the comic underneath yeah. looked like to see where he was having trouble. And that humanizes them, and to me it makes it a more beautiful work of art when you see it the way it wasn't supposed to be seen. Yeah, because they were meant for print. And so as you were saying before, nobody valued the original comics art uh, so many times and for so many publication houses. We're fortunate that Schultz has, you know, has his, the Schultz Museum has as much of his work as, as they do. Uh, it, I have the, uh, I've seen Charles Schultz's work 
in person at places like the Billy Ireland Museum, which is not far from where you are. It's, no, uh, it is not. Yeah, it's in Columbus. And uh, I've had the opportunity to see a lot of original art when I visited out there back a few years ago. And um, one of the things that always strikes me about Schultz's work in particular is how um, – there, there is correction, but there's rarely a lot of correction and very little pencil work. I mean, the pencil work is just at the most, it's very cursory, very light, maybe a sense of composition. But, but when you look at it up close, he, a lot of times he was just like, you know, freestyling it. He was, he was just improvising with that, you know, pen of his. And, uh, that blows me away. The control he had and the, and the immediacy of his drawing is all right there in the in the comic what's amazing is that charles schultz uh from all accounts he was very meek very mild very doubtful in his even his own appearance uh he just did not think he was an extraordinary gentleman uh until he sat down at the drawing board and he pulled he pulled the clark kent he pulled the superman once those glasses came off and he was concentrating on the comic strip, he was a completely different man. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew where every single line was supposed to go. He was the most confident man in the universe. A lot is written, even in the Schultz biography, about his insecurities, his troubles, his delving into himself. But not much, not much is said about him having such confidence and such a surge whenever he took off those glasses and then <laughs> and his drawing board in control. That's the man I want to hear a little bit more about, because I'm sure that man was just an amazing, amazing gentleman that's not talked about enough. Well, you know, I, I guess except for the people who, who work in the studio, worked in his studio as, as business assistants, right. you know, never, never assistants on the strip so much, but people who assisted him with other aspects of, of the work might work in between him and the, and the syndicate or something like that. Nobody really watched him work. Right. And so right. you didn't get to see him become Superman. It was something he did on his own. But I also think, you know, he did speak about those moments where he'd go to the, the office and, and say, why did I come here today? Because I couldn't come up with an idea. Right. And, I mean, he had those moments of vulnerability, too, even there. And uh, as as strong and confident as he was and I, and he was. I think this is one of those places where he went there and he was he was like very much I'm going to do the best comic strip today that anybody in the profession is doing, you know, right. and he, and he had that that confidence that spurred him on. But at the same time, he also had those moments where, you know, there were no ideas and he had to fight against it and go back to the house at the end of the day feeling frustrated. Of course, then he'd go back the next day and he would have six new ideas. So, you know. I, I love that it when it's it's glimpsed, it's not doesn't happen a lot. Wherever he, you, it showed he had some claws because even when he was working as an art instructor, and there was a fellow cartoonist said, you know what, I'm done, I give up, I'm quitting, I'm not going to be a cartoonist anymore. He would shoot back and say, good, less competition for me. And I'm thinking, <laughs> my goodness, that's quite a thing to say that someone is supposedly your friend that is quite a he healthy amount of competition you got going on there and that's the kind of man i want to know a little bit more about because that is just interesting to me the fact that he did struggle and yeah. he would tear up comic strips and yeah. put them in the garbage yeah my, my, my first instinct is say well i'll take them i would love yeah. to display those in my studio yeah yeah or, he or struggled, like any one of us it 
it humanizes a man that, in my opinion, is hard to humanize. Yeah, we tend to idolize him and, and put him on a pedestal. There's no doubt about that. I, 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 I do that myself. I mean, you know, he's up. He and Jack Kirby, who you you know worked for Marvel and created so. Oh, many, absolutely. Those my two icons in terms of of cartooning, and and I put I do put them up on a pedestal, and and um, you know, it's it's their example is something that we all aspire to. It's in some way or another, but at the same time, every day Schultz shows is shows his humanity and his vulnerability in Charlie Brown and Linus and Lucy and Snoopy and Schroeder and without a and, doubt, you know that that vulnerability comes through, and I guess that's what makes ultimately makes him so interesting a person, so rich, so so successful aesthetically successful uh, an artist is is that. You know, for all of his success, for all of it, um, he was able to be that successful and that disciplined and that strong while all at the same time being firmly in touch with everything that makes him human and that make him much like us, you know, people who struggle every day, you know, struggle to get through the day doing a job they don't like or, uh, uh, you know, frustrated because something happened at work or, you know, struggling with the, the duties and the jobs of parenthood or, uh, you know, all of those those things that adulthood and, and childhood can that can can stop us in our tracks and, and uh, you know, deter us from our goals or sometimes, you know, send us into a well of despair. All of those things that make us human, they're there on the page in Peanuts every day. And Charles Schultz, as successful as he was, you know, sending Snoopy to the moon. Right. I mean, right. Who, who does that? <laughs> uh, and, and makes that kind of money and sits it really is respected by everybody in the business um, and and in the world, really, you know, has done work that's more famous than the work of, in art than that of any other contemporary artist, you know, fine arts or commercial arts. Never mind. Right. And yet he's so completely in touch with what it is that makes us human. And Absolutely. Uh, it, it just it makes his achievement ever more astounding. You know, in that regard, because he just never lost touch with that. And he never believed his own publicity, if you will. He had three quotes that make him the most underrated thought leader of the 20th century, not just a cartoonist, get that out of the way, not just an artist or even a writer. It's been argued he's the most widely read author of the 20th century. Uh, I go further and say that he is an underrated thought leader. He had three quotes that I'm sure your listeners have heard before that I need, they bear repeating, and they're for artists, they're for anyone working in any kind of creative field, they're for anyone that's struggling day to day just trying to get the job done. The first one is to... Um, the muse punches a time clock. Have you ever heard that quote? No, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, because he believed in going to work every day, punching in at nine, getting out by four or five, and going to work every single day. He didn't believe in inspiration. He yeah. believed in the muse punches a time clock because if you wait for inspiration, it might never show up. If you well, go down there, you pull up your sleeves and you start working every single day, amazing things are going to happen. You have to go and dig for that gold every single day. The second quote is that always have another iron in the fire. Uh -huh. Whatever okay. you're doing, always have hope somewhere else. 
And that's why he was always submitting comic strips and ideas, even when he was working his regular day job as an art instructor. And then he was still sending out cartoons to um, the Saturday Evening Post, and he was getting rejected by syndicates left and right. Always have another iron in the fire. And the last one is very interesting. He would say that his job was to draw the same thing every day without ever repeating himself. And if anyone works a regular nine to five job, you know, that's the truth. You have to do the same thing every day without ever repeating yourself. So in those three quotes, it just shows what an amazing thought leader he was for the human race, not just an artist or a cartoonist. He was a representative of all of us. Well, you know, I think that's uh, those are there's a, a wealth of material there, uh, uh, and when I think about all of those quotes, they they all pertain. They still, particularly as you you grow older, or if you commit to an art form, or you commit to a life in the arts, or commit to a life in any field, right? Um, the muse punches a time clock. That's a really interesting thought because yeah, day in day out, um, you have to go and produce your work day in and day out and particularly in the creative fields you know you can't just if you rely on inspiration to guide you all the time well it's always going to be hit and miss and you're not going to produce in the way that um sustains a lifetime can i tell you a story about how i learned work ethic real quick Mm-hmm, sure. Okay, great. Remember I told you earlier the same day that I received a letter from University of Akron, full scholarship to college, and my first book deal. This is before cell phones. This is before anyone was home. I could not call my mom. I couldn't call my dad. They were either shopping or at work. The only person I could call was my grandfather. And I called grandpa and I said, hey, grandpa, I got a full scholarship to college and I got my first book deal. And my grandpa was a man of very few words. He said, that's great. I'm proud of you. I'm still going to need you on the back of the hay wagon in five minutes. We have a lot of work to do today because I was expected on the back of that hay wagon in 15 minutes. We had to bail about 500 bales of hay that day. So. And my family, we got to celebrate for about 13 seconds, and then I got to spend five hours in the hot Ohio sun sweating on the back of a hay wagon. So that's how I learned the value of a work (laughs) ethic. Oh, man. Do you still have to, you know, hay the, the field? You know what? My grandfather passed away 11 years ago, and he only passed away to prove a point because <laughs> uh, he was sick, and he farmed a 250-acre farm single-handedly, and he was in his mid-70s when he was doing this. And Grandma called me uh, one January morning and said, hey, Grandpa's not feeling well. Can you come throw hay down to the cows? And I cannot do anything on a farm, but I can take hay and move it from point A to point B. That's where my limitation ends. So I threw the hay down to the cows and I went inside to say hi to Grandma and Grandpa. And Grandpa said, you know what? I could have done that myself if you had given me a little bit more time. And I said, Grandpa, it is not going to kill you if I do a little bit of work around the farm while you're not feeling well. And he looked at me and he said, we will see about that. Oh. Didn't know what it meant then, but I know now. The next day he woke up, he willed himself to feel good. He fixed a fence in the cold January snow. He fixed a tractor. He worked in the barn all day. And just to prove a point, he died that night in the barn just to get the last word in on me. So oh <laughs> he, died, he died with his boots on. I guess he did. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, so he, I'm, I'm assuming what he passed away from a heart attack or something at the end of the day. or Yeah. 
That's yeah. what, uh, or it could be he just passed away from stubbornness because he only went to a doctor twice in his whole life because he had two kids. He went to go watch his, both of his kids being born. Other than that, you could not get him to the doctor. He was a very really? he was a man of a certain generation. We don't go to the doctor, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he sounds like it, but that's really incredible. So, uh, boy, that's I guess that's a topic for another time. Is your your life, uh, your experiences on the farm because. That's not an experience a lot of people talk about these days, and uh, and that is that is really that's a tough life, and it's a lot of hard work, and uh, I have it a lot was. of respect for it. And all, all I did, I was just working, I was just working, helping out my grandfather on the back of a hay wagon. I still cannot drive a tractor to save my life. I can't do anything with any of the animals, but I can pick up a hay bale and move it to a part that it needs to go to. That's about it. But. It, Boy, don't miss those days. Is the farm still in the family, or has it been sold off? Or it is not. Once, uh, once my grandfather passed away, the farm that had been in my family for uh, over two hundred years was sold. Oh, so wow. my grandmother now lives in a very nice house. She's in very good health, and she's enjoying her golden years, not having to be the wife of a farmer anymore. Yeah, that's well, that's great. You know, well deserved. Was it a dairy farm? I'm just curious. Was it a? Dairy? It, was a it was a beef farm. Beef it was farm. mostly okay. beef cows. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Even though I, I do tell a story that I do draw a uh, character in my comic strip. His yeah. name is Clyde. Clyde always has a bucket on his head because when I was younger, I would run around the farm scaring the cows out of their mind with a bucket on my head. And uh, any dairy cows that were in the vicinity, because there were dairy cows across the street, the next day when those cows gave milk, the milk they would give, it tasted horrible. Oh, man. My grandpa can never figure that one out because it never had any effect on the beef cows. But the dairy cows, it made the milk taste horrible. And my grandparents said, when you grow up, make sure one character in your comic strip always wears a bucket on his head. So that's why I draw Clyde. And my comic strip, there is an elementary school near Kansas City. Okay. That music teacher is now writing a musical based on my comic strip, and hopefully it's going to premiere this coming spring. So just imagine this. This coming spring, there will be students on stage singing and dancing their hearts out, and one of those lucky kids is going to be on stage the whole time with a bucket on his head. Wow. Hey, that's incredible. So let, <laughs> let's before we I know we have to you have to go in a few minutes. So um, I just want to let's talk about Zed a little bit. Zed yes. appears in your local newspaper. He appears in about 30 weekly newspapers um, and my client newspapers. I always joke are so small that I have one newspaper in Alabama. Their big news every single fall is they let the whole town know who's got the biggest pumpkin in town. So I always give the disclaimer that if your town is that small, chances are if you open up the the newspaper, there will only be one comic strip in the entire paper, and that will be mine. (laughs) Well, that's not bad, though. You know, less competition. and Yeah, absolutely. So I'm smart in that aspect, but uh, I've been producing my comic strip for... For 24 years. Uh-huh. I formed my publishing company, Corky Comics Publishing, um, about 10 or so years ago, just to uh-huh. ensure that my comic strip would always be in book form. Uh-huh. My comic strip Z is not available on any digital platform whatsoever. To show you, I really keep it old school because I want 
to have that experience of autographing a book. If you purchase a book, I want to be able to autograph it for you. So uh, I am known around town whenever my kids have a football game or any kind of event. I'm the dad that brings a box of books with me because during halftime, during downtime, when my kid is not on the field, I'm autographing books. So. <laughs> I will have a pile of books at any given time that I'm autographing to anyone that purchases one because no book leaves my studio unless it is personally autographed by me. Uh-huh. So um, so you're not interested in in trying to get the, the strip out there on, on uh, you know, Webtoons or something like that. Um, you're, you really this is like your modus operandi is to stay really traditional and, and old school and and uh, with the newspapers one way or the other. Well, you know what? There's just something about having a comic strip in a newspaper that should oh, yeah. never, it should never go away. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and if, um, if, if I'm doing it the old-fashioned way, you know what? That's the way my grandfather did it on the farm for however many generations before him. Uh-huh. It, it worked. Even if I, I'm a dinosaur at 39 years old, you know what? <laughs> I, I love what I do. I love being a cartoonist. I love drawing a comic strip. I love even if it's just for a couple hundred readers that might be reading that one small newspaper, I have a personal connection with them for 15 seconds and then they move on to whatever else they have to do the rest of the day. So I always say that even though I might not be the biggest, Uh I'm not the most well-known, I'm not a household name. I'm, I'm in the game. I'm doing something I love to do. I'm getting paid to do this. Yeah. you know what? There's there's a personal satisfaction there. I still have goals. I still have large goals that I want to accomplish. I'm just a journeyman like anyone else. I have not reached any kind of peak. I'm still trying to struggle the way anyone else does. And that is uh, interesting. Hopefully it's inspiring to all of your listeners out there that I don't have it all figured out. I'm still trying to learn as I go too. Well, you know, it, I mean, at, at 39, uh, you still have a long long way to go right and and a lot of years to work (laughs) yeah and uh and a lot of creativity to draw upon um do you think zed will be i mean first of all i kind of i admire your stick-to-itiveness and and your um your you know your values in the sense that you value that personal connection that comes out of appearing in a newspaper there is something different about that than scrolling through instagram and seeing comics you know on instagram that that does feel very impersonal even though you choose to follow somebody there's right. something that's kind of impersonal about it but when you pick up the newspaper whether it's your local penny saver or your local you know uh farm newspaper or whatever it happens to be uh, there is a kind of connection there and Hey, you know, 30 papers is nothing to sneeze at these days. You know, I mean, she'll start it off with only seven or eight, right? Seven, Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you know, that's, uh, there's something to be said for that. And, and you are connected with them. They expect to receive your, your work every week and they expect, uh, and they, they connect with you, whether through a check or they write you back or, you know, a phone call or whatever it is, but it's a personal connection. And that is, that is rare, you know, increasingly right. rare. And I admire that as much as I don't think I could do it. Um, I think it's a really interesting path and, and it, uh, it has a quality about it that I really can respect. I appreciate I, that. Um, so 
you know, have you ever like talking about Schultz's uh, uh, idea of having irons in the fire? Um, you know, do you, do you work on other ideas, do you have <laughs> other strips, or is this the the only one that you're focused on? Is is that, or or do you have other kinds of ideas? Well, that- you know what, I'm going to answer that question before I do that. I want to make sure I give a shout out to you because your new strip, Spiking the Lens. Oh boy, does it hit hard sometimes because you you have a character Zelda in there. She yeah. is a uh, she's doing it for the pure art of it. She is a theater. Yes, she is. To it. Oh my goodness, I knew people like that every single day, and those are the people I despised more than others. Oh, right. in the theater department because I was doing it for I want to entertain an right. audience, and I was really looked down upon. For that, because I just want the audience to have a good time. I want to make them laugh. I want to make them smile. I don't want to get weighted down by the art of it. And I feel the exact same way when it comes to drawing a comic strip. So having said that, uh, now I can answer your question. I do have other irons in the fire. I have other things that are very interesting. Um, I told you I wrote a play a couple of years ago just to see if I could do it. And then I thought, well, you know what? I wrote a play. I wonder if I can write a movie. Just to see if you can do it. And yeah. then and then I did it. And I thought, okay, what's the next step? I want to see if anyone will read this. Uh-huh. That happened. And then there was a producer. Uh, she lives out in Hollywood. She said, you know what? I, th- I think we may have something here. This Now, this might all be big talk. But she said, you know what? Uh, I want to enter into a shopping agreement with you, which what that means is that she's taking my script and she's able to shop it around to studios in Hollywood. And if anyone bites, she becomes the producer of this movie. I am the writer. And they float me a couple of bucks to put in my pocket. If that that happens, great. If it doesn't happen, you know, I have an amazing story to tell from my obituary. So that's. Yeah, but but you've started, you got one, you know, you could, hey, you've done it once. If it doesn't work, hey, you write another script and you've got the skills. And that's just something I, that's just something I do for fun. It's something I do for me just to see if I can do it. And then something else I'm starting up right now that I'm really excited about uh, this is where I get my mouth into trouble a lot. I'm very good at that. Is through social media, there is a gentleman that I was introduced to, and he owns a small TV station in Ohio. I was going to ask you. Yeah. It's a public access station. It runs right. old movies and such. But I told him, uh, you can hear my dog right yeah. now. Okay. I love dogs, so that's uh, great. Mopsy, we're making podcasts right now. Hush. <laughs> but uh, I said, you know what? You need a show on your channel that teaches children how to draw cartoons, sort of like Bob Ross, but for oh. kids. And he said, that's a great idea. When can you start? So I was filming the pilot episode a couple of weeks ago. I had three cameras on me. I had my director in the booth directing Uh things. And never once in filming this show did anyone ever come up to me and ask the question I was dying for someone to ask. No one said, Dwayne, do you know what you're doing? Because the answer would have been, no, I have no idea what I'm doing. But it was supposed to be a monthly TV show, just once a month, Mm -hmm. put it on the air, Mm-hmm. And see what sticks. Based right. on the based on the pilot episode and the strength of it, it's now a weekly show. So congratulations. 
what originally was going to be just a little monthly thing is now going to be a weekly show where I get to talk about cartooning. I get to have kids in the audience. I get to talk via Skype and such to cartoonists much more famous than I, my betters. And I get to leave them every single episode with a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of advice that I call toonspiration. I want to inspire everyone with <laughs> cartoons and inspiration. Yeah, and I I was able to work out the same deal that Bob Ross got for his TV show, meaning I do not get paid one cent to do this. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. And But, you know, this is just a small TV station with very limited resources, and this is just something I'm doing for fun. So this is my hobby. Hey, this man, is a but, way for me to have a little bit of fun. This is how it's great. And I, I think it sounds fantastic and it sounds perfectly suited to your abilities and to the personality that the theatrical personality that you've you've conceived of and created. I, I think it sounds fantastic. Well, thank um, you. But and I, I wish you all the best with it. And and I hope that I could find it on YouTube at some point. But um, what, what I, I want to say to you, though, is, you know, don't forget, man, Mr. Rogers started off, you know, in a small little, you know, um, public TV station. <laughs> in pittsburgh and and he became mr rogers you know absolutely so, i mean listen there's something to be said for this don't don't stop this is a great thing i think that they're you know particularly with young kids i think they're just this, this is a, a vehicle for for teaching for education for uh connecting with kids that could be really great so uh what's the name of it it's going to be called cartooning with Dwayne. okay and so the audition process was strenuous because they had lots of Dwayne's audition for this part. <laughs> and I'm the one that worked for the least amount of money, so they gave me the job. So thank goodness it's named after me because if I ever get fired, then they have to try to find another Dwayne to replace me. So good luck on that one. <laughs> well, all right. So, you know, uh, I don't think that, that there's no replacing you, I can tell. So, you know what? <laughs> Um, I, I really think that that sounds like a great opportunity. I hope it really works out. I'd love to see it put up on YouTube. Oh, it, uh, it's going to be whenever they start airing the episodes. I'll make sure yeah. something gets put up for all to see. Yeah, please be sure to let me know, okay? And, Absolutely. Uh, it, uh, I'd love to share that with my listeners, and I'd love to see it myself. So that's terrific. Well, Dwayne, uh, I know you have to go because the kid's got to get to the pool. But, yeah, um, he's, he's giving me a cue card right now saying we're almost ready to leave. So that's my son, Clayton, keeping me on task. Okay. Well, this has been a great conversation. Lots to talk about. And uh, at some point or another, uh, we'll talk again sometime uh, because there's still more ground to cover. And uh, I'll be really interested to hear how, how you do uh, in the coming year with the TV show. I'm, I'm really excited about that for you. And good luck with that. I hope you get some more papers Thank uh, you along much. the way. And good luck with that script. Thank you very much. Well, hey, anytime you want to talk some more, I would love to come back and talk about Charles Schultz and cartooning, my two favorite subjects in the whole world. You you bet. All right. We'll have a good time at the pool, and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you very much, sir. Have a good one. You too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion between myself and Dwayne. I think it was a pretty interesting episode. There's a lot of interesting insights and uh, interesting stories. Uh, about one cartoonist or another. I certainly won't ever look at Ziggy quite the same way in the future ever again. Uh, anyway, Dwayne wanted me to make a correction for himself. Uh, he incorrectly identified the sad sack uh, cartoonist as uh, Frank Ridgeway. In reality, the cartoonist he was thinking of was Fred Rhodes, who uh, drew over 9,000 pages of Sad Sack, uh, of which he received none. And the story about the lawsuit and uh, uh, 
you know, the jury award of $2.6 million. All that's true, uh, but the names were incorrect. Fred, uh, uh, Frank Ridgway, um, drew a comic strip called Mr. Abernathy. So that's a very different story, a very different comic. And um, But uh, Fred Rhodes was the person he was thinking of. So, okay, having said that, if you're interested in Dwayne's work or hiring him for a presentation, uh, check him out at CorkyComics.com. That's C-O-R-K-E-Y-C-O-M-I-C-S dot com. You can also follow him on Instagram at Corky Comics. That's Dwayne Abel. And I hope the TV thing really works out for him. Uh, that That's a pretty cool idea. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe he'll be the uh, the, the uh, Mr. Rogers of, of comics. I don't know. Uh, and I don't say that with any cynicism or disparagingly. I think that's fabulous. Uh, we could all use another Mr. Rogers or even a Bob Ross. One way or the other, uh, they brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. So more power to you, Dwayne. I hope that works out. I hope you got a lot out of that episode. I hope you, you know, um, the idea that different pathways are viable and have their own validity. Uh, I think that's something that's, I know for me, it, it's always been kind of hard to accept. You know, I've always been looking for validity in the eyes of others. I don't know why I do that. But, uh, you know, late in the game, I'm beginning to realize and be satisfied with validity from from myself and uh, and realize also you know, whether you hit a home run in cartooning and a lot of people line up to see your work or, or not, that if you're doing something that you really enjoy and that you can be proud of uh, and feel good about, then, you know, you're, you're, you are hitting all the bases and uh, tagging all the bases that count. And I don't know what the baseball metaphors are about, but I've been listening to the Yankees lately and a little bit frustrated, but that's a side story. Anyway, uh, you know, that's that's the deal. And and it's late in the game for me, in a way, uh, to realize that. But uh, I've gotten a lot of satisfaction lately out of the work I'm doing. And it's it's not really, uh, you know, I mean, certainly it's not it's not hitting the ball out of the park. And it's really just getting in terms of, you know, uh, visibility and in terms of audience, uh, but it's it's establishing an audience that seems to like it, and uh, and I'm taking satisfaction in that one step at a time, and uh, I think it's it's a really important place to get to as a cartoonist, is in, and as an artist in general, is this place where you can take a lot of satisfaction out of the joy of working, the joy of doing something you love. Uh, and and the joy of sharing it with other people, no matter how small a group that might be, uh, that's that is validity. That is important. And uh, um, take great, take pride, take joy in all of those things, because you know we only get one go round, right? So um, make sure that you you experience it for all it's worth, and that means um, you know taking pride in yourself as well, right? And uh, and that's important. So anyway, um, so that means go to spikingthelens.com. <laughs> go, go to spikingthelens.com. Uh, follow me on Instagram at Crokin Jeff. That's G-E-O-F-F, please. Make sure you listen to the podcast and share the thing with everybody who listens, who all of your podcast listening friends. Make sure they listen to this podcast. Make sure they read my gosh darn comics. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and subscribe because I want more followers. <laughs> One way or the other. Uh, no matter anything I said, don't believe any of it. <laughs> I want as many followers as I can get. Uh, anyway, don't we all? Uh, <laughs> but reality, uh, the reality is, you know, uh, ex- exactly that. You know, it's out there for a reason. I want people to read it. So please read it. And it's it's in the beginning, you know, so it grows and develops. And it's pretty cool where it develops. My dogs are barking. I don't know what's going on down there. I think the mailman's arrived or something like that. Who knows? Anyway, they get excited. Maybe they're excited because uh, I'm in a good mood. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I uh, hope that doesn't bother you too much. But um, maybe it's something I should go check on. Anyway, uh, is there anything else I'm supposed to tell you? I know, uh, let's see, oh, I've got, I had a great conversation the other day with Pat Sandy of the Next Door Neighbors comic strip. Boy, I love that comic strip. It's on Go Comics. Uh, Pat Sandy comes out of the field, just like Terry Liebenson, out of the field of greeting cards. Maybe that's like the, you know, a a training ground, a a farm system for for syndicated comic strip artists. But Pat is, you know, just terrific. Uh, His style is um, hilarious, and I love love Next Door Neighbors. It is a very funny comic strip. It is a very dependable laugh. And Pat and I, we just, we hit it off like, I don't know, like peanut butter and jelly or something. So uh, check into that. Must be lunchtime. Uh, Check into that next time. Be looking for it. It'll come out pretty soon. And then the big episode is my interview with Ray Billingsley, uh, comic strip legend, comic syndicated legend of Curtis, uh, the great cartoonist Ray Billingsley. And we have a long extended wonderful conversation and uh boy uh, that was a great moment for me and and i'm looking forward to sharing that with you too so a lot is happening come back check it out again uh you know share it with your friends all of that and be sure to come back and be sure to gosh darn it be sure to follow my my comic strip spiking the lens at spikingthelens.com or follow me on instagram i want all those instagram followers as many as i can get uh and uh and get that comic strip out there it's called spikingthelens.com and uh, i'm working on some interesting stuff i hope you're you are too i hope your cartooning is going well and um uh and i hope your summer's going well let's try to stretch it out make it last as long as it can and i will see you soon thanks for listening Thank you.